Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, week number six of the social distancing era of this podcast. We do have some sports to talk about this week, though, because the NFL draft is coming up on Thursday. I'm going to be joined in just a bit by Bill Bender from the Sporting News to preview the upcoming draft, talk about some of the top prospects in the mix there. Some fun stuff with Bill coming up. We also have some more sports pop culture mesh coming up as well. ESPN is dropping the first two parts of its documentary series on Michael Jordan, the 30 for 30, the last dance, but the 98 bulls and we're covering the episodes every week on the podcast this week. I'll be doing so with Martina Puccio and Jack Clark. We'll be talking about that in just a bit. The regular pop culture at the end of the show is going to be a good spot with my buddy, Steve Colso. And we are going to talk about that show, the circle on Netflix, which was social distancing before it was cool. So we'll talk about that with Steve in just a bit, but We'll get all started this week's opening tip, where I weigh in on the latest. Some timetables are coming out for some sports to come back. We have one already on the board saying when they want to come back. Another potentially in the mix with some positive thoughts from Dr. Fauci right after this. People are still holding out hope for some kind of abbreviated baseball season this summer. College football will start in late August, NFL right after that. Do you think those sports seasons are in jeopardy? Are we going to have college football this fall? There's a way of doing that. Nobody comes to the stadium. Put them in big hotels, you know, wherever you want to play. Keep them very well surveilled, namely a a surveillance, but have them tested like every week and make sure they don't wind up infecting each other or their family and just let them play the season out. All right, there you have it. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci, well known for his expertise on infectious diseases and one of the people on the task force about the coronavirus talking to Peter Hamby on Snap discussing the idea of sports returning in America. And as of right now, there is not full sports yet, but we do have one return on the calendar. The PGA is planning to begin its season again on June 12th. They're planning to do at least the first four events without fans. And it's something that's not surprising because I think most of us with logical brains consider that golf would be there first be the first sport back because you look at the way golf is structured they're not big masses of people gathering together golfers play the course solitarily sometimes with a playing partner but you could socially distance from that playing partner socially distance from the caddies and you can test the golfers ahead of time so like if one golfer has the virus he can get sent home which not be affecting the rest of the field the clubhouse will be closed you can work this these things out. The logistics are there. They're working on them right now. I would not be surprised if golf is the first one back. What Dr. Fauci went into right now about baseball, I think is also interesting because baseball in theory is a sport that's not a contact sport. The players are spaced out enough. It should happen. And Dr. Fauci basically admitted that there's a way for it to get done. He says the way he's describing about the, the testing, the bubble stuff, it sounds like the Arizona, uh, Florida plans that baseball is talking about right now. There are still issues to work out, however, including, number one, you have to get the players to agree to 
do this for four or five months at a time. That's a problem. You also have the financial implications, which those are not going to go away very easily. I mean, Governor Cuomo recently spoke in New York here. He spoke to CVS. He said he talked to Mets owner Jeff Wilpon about the thing. Wilpon basically admitted that if the season is to get going again, the players have to take more salary reductions because they're not getting the gate revenue in there. That's going to be a fight because you know the players basically said, hey, we agreed to this back in our first negotiation. We took a basically a decreased salary for the season. We agreed to be paid on a prorated basis when the season comes back. We did not agree to you further amending the money situation here. That's going to be a conversation that's going to have to be had. But the news from Fauci is encouraging because there is a little light there to say, you know what, maybe we'll have sports back at some point. Once the testing gets up to speed, once everybody has access to testing and we can figure this out and structure it in a way that's safely to happen. This same question he obviously asked about college football. We didn't address it directly, but it sort of applies to the NFL the same thing. The NFL right now is working on plans to have their season with empty stadiums, working on contingency plans, because ideally, in a great world, the NFL would say, you know what, like we want to be able to open the stadiums, have all the fans in, but the NFL doesn't need the fans to make the money. They need the TV contracts. And right now, that's their biggest thing, is that if they can put the game on TV, they can be well set up to do this. The one thing that we have to remember here, and Phil Freyetta, our legal correspondent, mentioned this last week, this is not going to be a situation where, you know what, we're going to expect to be going to sporting events before there's a treatment or a vaccine because the risk you would take from getting this disease, it's simply too high. Public officials won't allow it. Even if they did, think about this. If you're going to a sporting stadium and there's no vaccine or no treatment and you're basically crammed in with all these people all at once, the odds of you getting an infection would be very, very high because this thing infects a lot of people. The death rate of this thing in the U.S. right now is about 5%. And I admit this number is going to come down because there are probably unreported cases of the of the virus that are resolved on their own. There are probably a bunch of asymptomatic people who never got tested, never felt anything, went through their lives just fine. But the issue you have here is like, let's say, for instance, imagine that you went to a football game at MetLife Stadium this year. You say you wanted to go watch the Giants play the Cowboys this year. The seating capacity at MetLife Stadium is 82,500 people. If enough people had walked into that building as asymptomatic carriers of this virus, let's say that happened. Let's say, argument's sake, this is hypothetical. Everybody got infected somehow at the building. You're talking about 4,125 people at the current death rate who could die from this thing, assuming the math health. Are you going to roll the dice if you want to 4,100 people and ends up dead? I don't think so. I think right now, I think the only way to get sports for a long time is without fans. And I think it's possible. There are ways to do this. We do have the idea that Dr. Fauci is, seems to be on board with. There are logistical issues to work out still, but I think it's going to be a bit. I mean, golf's going to be the first thing back. Maybe we get baseball a month after that. The NBA, I'm recording on Friday the 17th right now. The NBA is a little more 
cautious right now. There was reports kind of they were optimistic about restarting the season, but they had a conference call today. Adam Silver basically said, the data tells us when the sport can come back, not the date. I think that's a very important distinction. There was simply a lot of information we don't know about this virus yet. Can people be reinfected? How much immunity will you have if you get through the virus once? How long does that immunity last? Those are questions we simply don't know yet. And that's going to take more testing. I mean, MLB is participating in a antibody testing survey to help determine the spread of the virus nationwide. That should help provide information. Drugs being tested throughout the country to figure out are any of these viable treatments? Because again, the vaccine is the ultimate answer, but a treatment gets the economy open right away. I think we're gonna, still going to be waiting a while for sports. It's not going to be anything before summer besides golf, I would think. But there is some light here. Dr. Fauci offers you some hope as a sports fan that stuff will come back. Might not be in the form you're used to, might not be in the places you're used to, but there is a chance. And that feels like better than what we had about a week or two ago when it looked like everything was going to be shut down forever and ever and ever until we had a vaccine. That's a positive. That's something to look forward to. And we will keep informing you on updates of stuff as it emerges in the coming weeks. But up next, we'll go to our actual sports news here. We will preview the NFL draft with Bill Bender right after this call from the college football championship game, courtesy of ESPN's Chris Fowler. Now Burrow going to launch downfield for Chase. Who's got it? Touchdown, LSU. It took a while, but the Bayou Bengals offense says join the party. All right, we are back here getting ready for the NFL draft this week on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Joining us today is... The guy who covers college football for the sporting news. You heard from him a couple of times before on the podcast. The great Bill Bender is here with us. Bill, thanks for calling in today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. As you know, we're all still in the social distancing period here. We're getting ready for this virtual NFL draft. Like, what do you think about this whole thing about doing the draft from home with all the teams sort of teleconferencing each other to get these picks in? Well, I mean, obviously it's a different world we live in. I mean, I had my kids and I just and my wife just watched the uh Easter Bunny drive by on the back of a pickup truck because that's the world we live in right now. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll, it'll be a very different viewer experience. It'll be interesting to see how the NFL can pull it off. I know, uh, and at the end of the day, I think people care more about the picks than the presentation. So at least we get to have the NFL draft. Yeah, I agree. I feel like most people could just be happy to have something on sports-wise that's not an old game or a horse competition. Just be happy to actually see something that gives you hope is actually football this year. Yeah, and you know that's where we're all at. It's a day-by-day thing. I mean, I'm based in Ohio, where it, the the impact has been at least curbed by by very good social distancing people. So I, I think as we do that day by day, um, hopefully this thing will go down and we can get back on football fields. Indeed. Let's go with the actual draft for a little bit. I want to start off with uh, the guys probably going number one, Joe Burrow. He's assuming going to the Bengals with the first overall pick. Who, in your opinion, is a good pro comparison for him? I mean, you, you've heard the comparisons to Brady and Breeze, which would be the top shelf comparisons. I think with his mobility, his smart, the way he you know gets rid of the ball quickly. I don't know. You know, obviously, those are the loftiest comparisons possible, but I think he has a game in between those guys in terms of on the field and he's very smart he gets rid of the ball 
uh, makes good decisions. And, and the thing that you keep hearing most about Joe Burrow is how intelligent he is on the football field. And I know some high school coaches around here in central Ohio who can attest to that back all, all the way back then. So I, I think he'll have a very good NFL career. The Bengals should draft him, no doubt in my mind. And uh, it, it's going to be cool to see how he does when he yeah, it will be cool to see indeed. I also am curious about the next two guys on the board in terms of the quarterbacks, Tua Tagovailoa or Justin Herbert. Like, which one of those two do you like better? Um, you know, I think uh, Tua is a guy I like a little bit better. I think that's no disrespect to Herbert. I think Herbert will have a good career, but uh, Tua is a guy that I think provided he shows he's healthy, he shows you know an efficient playmaking skill set through the days at Alabama. His vision's off the charts in terms of how. He's able to see the whole field, and I think he'll be able to do that in the next level. And he is the most intriguing player on the board, in my opinion, because the other guys that might go in the top ten, they're okay. But I think uh, Tua is a guy that certainly, you know, he, he if he, as long as he's healthy, he could be a franchise quarterback and make a big difference. Yeah, I would I would agree with that assessment. I feel like the thing with him is obviously the hip, and like I've heard teams are going to go over. I feel like he's going to go as high as three. I feel like that's going to be a prime trade off the Lions, and somebody's going to go up there and get him. Yeah, I mean that the draft really does start at three because it's going to be interesting to see who, if they hold on to that pick or if there's trades. If uh, Tool works himself into that part of the draft, now uh, you know it, it really there's any number of teams that should be interested in him, whether it's Miami, uh, the Chargers. Uh, even New England, who heard who those rumors. So I, I think those are all teams to consider, and it'll be interesting to see if somebody makes that trade and pulls up and tries to grab two. Yeah, and this is obviously most, the most tension in the draft usually goes with the quarterback prospects. Talk about three of them. Like how many quarterbacks told you they're going to get drafted in the first round? Well, probably, uh, you know, obviously Tua and Joe and Herbert, that's a pretty safe bet there. I guess the question after that is, does a guy like uh, – um, Jordan Love, does somebody take a chance on him? Are, are there a couple of those other guys? I don't think Jake Fromm will get drafted on day one. But, I mean, those four that I mentioned probably go in the first round. Definitely Joe and Tua. Definitely Herbert. And then it'll come down to somebody really likes Jordan Love or not. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. And we talk about, obviously, you said the draft stars three. It's because Chase Young is probably going at number two, the Redskins. And is Chase Young, in your opinion, a better passing prospect than the Nick Bosa was who came out of Ohio State last year? I mean, those comparisons are made, and I, I think they're both going to be impact players. I think they're different kinds of pass rushers. Chase Young off the edge, super athletic, quick, you know, tall, has a bend, and I, I think Nick Bosa is just a complete, uh, strong, very bull rush type with his great hands. They both have great hands, though, and that's what they've learned at Ohio State. They've become good. They've become good when they were at Ohio State. Now but they that working with Larry Johnson for three years made them elite. And uh, both of them are elite pass rushers. So, I, I mean, I still like Nick Boza the most out of him, Chase Young, and Joey Boza. But that doesn't mean Chase Young's just not going to be a you know all-pro type player at the NFL level. Yeah, he'll be fun to see how he does in Washington. And obviously, like, I'm here based in New York. The New York teams are both, like, really interested in the offensive tackle prospects. And we heard the big four at the top there. Jedrick Wills, Andrew Thomas, Mekhi Becton, Tristan Wirth. So which of those four guys do you like the most? I think Becton's probably, he showed the athleticism at the combine, but they all did. Um, Wirth is probably the one I like the most because I think he's going to be dependable. Um you know, obviously that Iowa background, they, they, they produce good offensive linemen. So I think he's just the next one that could do a very, very good job for them, be an excellent pass protector. Um, 
but they're all four. They offer you something. And uh, Willis, obviously, a lot of those Alabama guys have done their thing at the next level. He could be the next one very easily. Yeah, that's true. I think both the Jets and Giants will be very lucky if they can get one of those tackles. The Jets are also going to be in the market for a receiver. I've heard reports, plenty of them, that this class of wide receivers is incredibly deep. Like, somebody who's watched all these receivers, how much value can teams find looking for receivers in this draft? Well, you can get whatever kind of receiver you want. That's the advantage. You know, Justin Jefferson is different than Henry Ruggs. He's a burner. T. Higgins and Jerry Judy are outstanding receivers. And you can go way down the draft board and find a guy like Donovan Peoples-Jones who tested well at the Combine and maybe a little bit more of a development project. But this is as deep of a receiver class as we've ever had, meaning, you know, you could probably wait a little bit. And most teams probably will. I mean, he's like a guy like Jalen Rager out of tape. TCU. You can find a purpose for him. So, yeah, that's definitely the deepest position group and, and going to impact some things there. Yeah, like I know a team like, like obviously, I'm a Jet fan and like the Jets definitely need receivers. Like, I'm my strategy for them would be like, hey, like, you know what, take if you can take your tackle 11, get a receiver in the second, then get another middle round. So, if you feel like the odds of you hitting on one that were pretty high. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's definitely a deep position group in this draft. And, uh, now, Ruggs is a name that's been tied to the Jets a lot through this process. I mean, I think he'd be a good fit there, but uh, you could get, you could probably get two in this draft with how many good ones are running around. Yeah, what do you think about Jerry Drew specifically? Because he's the best guy I've heard in the receiver class. We've heard like great things from him. Like, what do you think he can do at the next level? I mean, he's gonna, he's complete. He, he's just like Amari Cooper was. He's just like maybe not as a physical freak as. Uh, Julio Jones, but I mean, the Amari Cooper comp is very legit. I mean, they're just polished in their route running, find ways to get open. They're fast, athletic, great hands. He checks every box. I mean, he was probably, I thought going into last year, he was the best player in college football. Now, some other guys, you know, maybe passed him or stood out a little bit more. But Jerry Judy's been consistent in his entire career with Alabama, and I look for the same at the NFL level. Yeah, let's go the other direction. Like, which position group do you feel like is the most thin? Like, where you have to, like, strike early if you're looking for a guy at certain spots? Well, I don't think there are a lot of elite corners in this draft. I mean, there's definitely Jeffrey Okuda um, and some good ones, like Christian Fulton or, uh, you know, uh, Henderson from Florida, C.J. Henderson. But it's not a super deep group. There are, there are talented corners, but that's a position that NFL teams want you to come in and play right away. And uh, I don't think this is as deep at that position as it is in previous years. Maybe I'm off on that, but that's just my feeling. Yeah, what about the edge rushing group? Because I feel like last year in particular was like a huge run on the edge rushers early in the draft. And I feel like this year I'm not hearing as many names aside from Chase Young in that category. Well, no, yeah. I mean, because, you know, last year and the last couple of seasons, you've had a lot of dynamic guys at that position. Now this year, if you're looking for an edge rusher, that's a sliding definition. A guy like FNS is going to get taken but he's not a true edge rusher. Um, you know, Kenny Willick is out of Michigan State. Not really an edge rusher, more of a traditional inside-outside defensive end. So I think it isn't the same. And you may make a good point. There aren't a ton of guys out there that could be 10-sack guys in the NFL right away. But, you know, that doesn't mean they can't develop into that. Yeah, what about the running backs? I know uh, J.K. Dobbins is projected as a first-rounder a first in some parts. Do you feel like this is another good draft where you can like find running backs around three, four, five, like the NFL team's been trying to do in recent years? Uh, Jonathan Taylor's a guy that could be that guy, J.K. Dobbins. Um, you know, they're, they're probably the two best running backs in this draft. And Taylor had an excellent combine. Excellent combine. Did a very good job. And I think DeAndre Swift's obviously a name that would get tossed in there, too. Um, uh, there's not a running back in this class that's top five or even top 10 material, but I, I think 
somebody might be willing to take a first-round pick on Jonathan Taylor based on what he's done. And he had a better combine than most of those other Wisconsin running backs, Melvin Gordon included. Yeah, I'm curious that you brought up the combine. One thing I've noticed is obviously with the whole coronavirus situation, a lot of these kids do not get to do their pro days. Like some of the people who opted not to work out the combine now are getting hurt because they can't work out for the scouts. Like, do you think that's going to be a big deal? You think that's the case you think where some of these scouts just go back to the actual game tape on these guys? Well, I mean, this is just another part of our weird new reality where you didn't get to see some of these guys work out or, you know, with all the pro days, nobody expected that. And it really changes, you know, the outlook. It's going to change the draft because, I think teams are going to try to play it a little bit safer with the guys they know instead of guys that they were maybe trying to get more info on later. Yeah, I feel like the kids are going to get hurt the most here, probably like these small school kids who don't usually get the invites to the combine. Like, I feel like a lot of them might end up going undrafted, whereas years past, you have somebody say, oh, I'll take one in the fifth round, sixth round, if I have a good feeling on the guy. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and that's why the combine was so important for a guy like Chase Claypool. You know, he really increased his stock with how well he performed and is going to be a mismatch as a wide receiver tight end at the next level. There are some other guys out there that think could do a really good job. But, um, yeah, I think it's one of those things where it does hurt those smaller school guys and some of those, you know, or even people like, I don't want to say it's hurt like Chase Young, but Chase Young chose not to work out. And some of, There are more questions about more prospects as a result. Young isn't one of those guys, but there'll be other ones that are. Yeah, one of the more intriguing guys in this draft, and he's been linked to the Giants at four, I don't know if they'll go that way, is Isaiah Simmons, who's sort of like, He's a bit of a hybrid player. Like, where do you think his best fit is on a pro defense? Well, anywhere. <laughs> I mean, he can play a little bit of linebacker, a little bit of safety. I mean, not many players talk about um, that, like getting sacks and getting interceptions in the same breath as being equal. And he's one of those guys. He's uh, outstanding player at Clemson. Uh, can play all of those positions and will be one of those guys that, you know, like Sue Cravens was for a little bit. But um, I think Simmons is better than that. He, and he had a great combine, too, so it just showed how good of an athlete he really is. Yeah, you mentioned also corners of four, Jeff Akuda. Like, how big is the drop-off from him to the next guy on the on the board? Uh, Fulton's pretty good. Um, you know, Henderson's pretty good. But Okuda, you could make the argument that he's the best player in this draft, too. Uh, and that's wild to say, considering his teammate Young's probably going to go, too. But Okuda's that good. I mean, he's that polished a corner. High State's had a run of cornerbacks that are awesome at the next level and i think he's going to be the next one and uh you know obviously a lot was made of the exchange he had a report with a reporter at the combine but yeah his tape doesn't lie he's clean he's polished he's, he's got great hips and uh ability to run and all those kind of things he's awesome yeah my last one for you is like obviously everybody knows the big names but some people like like to try and find those sleepers who aren't getting talked about as much but can have big impacts on the NFL level. Who are some guys you're looking at that are not getting talked about too, too much in terms of potential NFL impact? I mentioned Claypool. He's obviously going to have an impact. I mean, a guy like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, he could be interesting in an, the right NFL scheme, being one of those guys that be a tough inside runner and, and have a handful of touches every game and make an impact. I think Antoine Winfield Jr. is interesting. Um, awesome player in Minnesota. And uh, his dad was obviously very good at the NFL level. And when you know have players like that that perform well at college, you wonder why he didn't get a little more buzz. Um, I think he's a guy that could be awesome at the next level. Yeah, I think this draft will teach us a lot because I think a lot of these teams are already complaining. They're not going to be able to do their usual work. But I feel like the, the teams that actually can scout are going to have a huge leg up here. I suppose the ones just relying on the workouts because they feel like this is the year where, like, if you know how to scout, how to identify talent, you'll do well. Whereas, like, Teams struggle every year. I feel like this could be sort of expose the teams who are not good at scouting. 
Yeah, I mean, that is, again, it's going to be a one once in a lifetime draft. Hopefully, hopefully we never do this again, um, where these teams are doing this and uh, they are able to, yeah, like you said, rely on their scouting, rely on their personnel that that evaluate all these talent throughout the year. And uh, it is going to make for a cool draft. I think it's going to be good for us to have that. I mean, at least we have a big event that we can point to and enjoy. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the draft. Bill, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find on social media and keep up with what you're writing at the Sporting News? Yeah, I'm at SportingNews.com, Bill Bender. Uh, you know, we'll have plenty of draft content along the way. Uh, our staff got shortened a little bit um, with the you know, staffing issues, but we've got enough people there that, that are ready to go and, and write a lot about the draft in the next coming weeks. So come check us out. All right, Bill. Thanks again. I, I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thank you. All right, and there you have it. That was Bill Bender from the Sporting News talking NFL draft. Up next, going to, into the 30 for 30 on Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls team, The Last Dance, parts one and two aired on Sunday. We're going to talk about that with some guests right after this. We are back here on the Just End of Suffering podcast. Time to talk The Last Dance, the 30 for 30, 10-part epic of the 1998 Chicago Bulls, the last dance of that dynasty. We're covering the, on the podcast with panels each of the next five weeks. First up, we're going to bring back the guy who has been doing a lot of pop culture coverage with his lady. He's been making a lot of appearances, Martino Puccio. Martino, welcome back. How are you? Good, not bad. Kind of getting used to every day being day zero during this quarantine. So thank God we had something brand new last night. And I'm thankful for two episodes instead of one, by the way. Yeah, that was great. And also with us, somebody we got last time to back at the beginning of NFL season, but a big basketball fan, Jack Clark. Jack, welcome. How are you? Good, Mike. Good to talk to you again. Like Martino said, still adjusting and kind of now getting used to everything being this uh, work from home and not being involved with sports is different, but this was a nice little change of pace and something to look forward to. And it was awesome to have two episodes and almost nice to not to have two and not all 10, because I probably would have watched all 10 last night. Now you have something to look forward to at least. Yeah. For another month or so, we're going to have the, so night that you guys been the first two to come on here, to talk about this. We are one, we were three of the, 6.1 million viewers who watched this thing last night, shattering the record for an ESPN doc, beat the, you You, you don't know Bo at 3.6 million. This almost doubled that. Yeah. Um, it, the crazier part that I saw from, from the ratings was that over 400,000 people in the city of Chicago alone were watching last night. So, you know, and almost anybody who, who knew it was on was ready and tuned in, tuned in. And that's, what it's been 22 years since that team won or it's going to be 22 years in a, cu- in a couple months it's just like that's that's the fascinating thing to me about the whole situation is on i don't know of another dynasty that really carries through sports like that that still can hook people in today like that it's awesome to think that all that stuff was put away in a vault for so long and then 
one day, allegedly MJ just decided, let's run with it, you know? For all we know, we never could have got it for whatever reasons, but it's awesome. And I can't even imagine for the people that knew about this being away in a vault somewhere, probably just waiting for it to finally come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, what Jack is referencing is that this footage was shot in the 97, 98 season. A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. We've seen like, the stuff of them in Paris and some of the practice footage. Like, it was put in a vault, and basically MJ had control over it. Jordan basically had control of when it was being released. And if you read the stories of late, basically he decided during LeBron's 2016 title at Cleveland that, that was the time to give permission for the doc to be made. So figure he'd give, give himself a boost in the GOAT race. But with that in mind, we'll also go ahead. We'll go to some of this stuff. Before we dive into the actual things itself, I know you guys are both a little young for the 98 Bulls. So, like, what you're, what have you been told over the course of time? What do you know about these teams? I'll go with you first, Jack. Yeah, for a younger, I guess, sports fan, someone like me and Martino didn't live through this. Just you hear of it like it's lore. And for us, it's almost like um, that. that was the first, thing that was the comparison for the Warriors during their dynasty, you know, that everyone compared them to the Bulls because of, obviously, their regular season success, but also the postseason success. So that was just, that was the ultra comparison for that, which, um, and obviously, that was the team comparison. But of course, LeBron and Kobe being the comparison to MJ as the player, and just, you know, even growing up as a kid, not being able to live through that. There's so many things, everything that revolves around the sports world, everywhere you go, you see that Jordan logo and associated with Nike. You know, he was just, um, he paved the way for so many people to do what they're doing today. You know, sports figures didn't, um, they didn't have endorsement deals like that really. And MJ paved the way for the guys that make so much money off of it now in all sports. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I always looked at basketball history for as long as I can remember and used to watch some of the full games from those finals that they played in, like, over the course of the six years. Obviously, it was only, like, very young like Jack, but I think, like, Michael and – not just Michael, but the, but those teams. Michael is just one of those names that you automatically know about when you're kind of growing up. You don't recall recall the first time you hear about him. But you just know, since you were a kid, like you always knew about Babe Ruth and, and all, the, all the home runs he hit for the Yankees and the curse of Bambino and Muhammad Ali's impact, like culturally, uh, politically wise, um, and just him being the best boxer that ever lived. And then there's just Michael. And Michael, the difference with Michael is that he's more modern than those guys. Those guys are a little bit more mythical. Michael is that, but we also have proof of it, and he's still around today. And just to have footage from the 98, like, at least that season is just fascinating. And it's beautiful, like, picture, too, you know? Like, nothing screeny. Like, nothing nothing makes it look like that's the late 90s, you know? Like, that's how good how good it looks, opposed from some of the outfits he was wearing. But but just, like, that, the being able to just open everyone's eyes into this to connect generations is just, Amazing because there there's nothing more iconic than the '90s Bulls in my opinion in, in American sports. They it, the worldwide reach of it is just unparalleled. Yeah, we saw some of that in the episode last night. I mean, I was like in the third grade when this team was playing, and they were absolute rock stars. I mean, 
everywhere they went, everybody was obsessed with the Bulls. They were all over TV. They were all over the radio. They were the biggest deal of that of that sports era. Like them and the 98 Yankees are probably the two big teams at the time, but the Bulls just took a global, like a global phenomenon. We saw some of that last night. Without any further ado, I'm gonna throw out the spoiler warning up, so. If you have not seen the first two episodes of The Last Dance, you can go onto the uh, ESPN app. They're all on there. Check it out. Come back. And I have to say, this thing was so much fun. I mean, like, what did you guys think just watching it just flow onto the screen last night? I actually tuned in a little bit late, so I had to go back um, today after work to watch the beginning of it because I saw uh, right away the thing was, too, was I knew right when it started, my phone was going to be blown up just from group chats that I was in, and it was. So the first thing I missed was um, people texting and saying, how did Jerry Krause say, I don't care if you go 82-0, and 0, you're done. You know, so, like, that was the first big thing. It was, like, I, MJ talked about it being, you know, a competitive spirit and talking about he's not going out there to lose. You know, they had won a fifth championship you would think with the way sports works is that you're going to ride that until they prove that they can't do it anymore. Jerry Krause just coming from, I don't know where he was coming from with that. And a lot of people I saw, you know, reading stuff today, he talked about the um, coming from a baseball background and comments about organizations winning championships, not players alone. You know, that's so much different in the sport of basketball because Basketball, you have five players on the court. One player can make an absolute difference. It's a lot different in baseball. You know, I think he came from that background and thought that it's truer in baseball that organizations win championships. And it's not true that organizations don't win them in basketball. But, you know, you understand, you look at that team. um, Michael Jordan was the biggest reason for that dynasty. Um, But overall, it was obviously just incredibly fascinating and I was glued to it once I tuned in, and when the second episode started, it was like I said, just I was glued to it until it was, it was over. In general, I mean, well, the first so like the first episode, I didn't really learn all that much. Like I knew some of it, like some of the behind the scenes footage was great to see. Um, I knew, I always knew it was Michael and Jerry Reinsdorf that had rights with, with one another. And, and, and the relationship was always stale with ownership. To be honest, I didn't know to the extent of how Jerry was. Jerry Kraus. Um, so Kraus, I mean, that seeing that side of him, I, I thought he maybe got a little too much from from what they were doing, especially in the second part, where when I went more as Scotty's point of view uh, and opinion of him, that it, it just seemed like he kind of understood where he was coming from with the lack of credit because making a move up for a guy like Scotty at the time and not coming from a, from a blue blood or, or a household name like UNC and Michael was. I mean, that's some serious scouting. And, and, to, and to also get Horace Grant in the same draft as that, those are two centerfold pieces, uh, one a Hall of Famer and one of the main pieces of uh, the original three piece that they had. It's, I, I understood where he's coming from, but at the end of the day, Jack's 100% right. Like the, the amount of impact a singular great basketball player can make is unmatched in any other sport. Because we see Mike Trout all the time. We see Jacob DeCom 
Um, all these guys are just fantastic, and then it absolutely means nothing at the end of the day because they can't carry a team like that. You have to develop your own guys, bring them up, uh, make smart trades, and all that stuff with basketball. If you hit on the right pick, I mean, we see the Cavs. It doesn't matter who you are. The Cavs, San Antonio Spurs, you can be a small market. You have a great player like Tim Duncan, LeBron James, or whoever. Like That could carry you for 10, 10 to 15 years if you play your cards right with the other pieces. And and look, I, I just think I, I think at the end of the day, one of the quotes that I heard was that Jerry didn't get enough credit for what he did, but he thought he got he, he thought he deserved more credit than what he actually deserved. So, like he was right in the sense that he didn't get enough credit, but he was actually looking for way too much credit, and that's kind of how I think they that got caught in the crossfires. And the whole Phil Jackson thing, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just stupid, like. Like, if you could say they just lost the title, it's fine. Like, get over it. But, I mean, look, it's 72 wins against the Sonics title. And then I think they said it was like 11 days after. Scotty got the game-winning steal to clinch the title against the Utah Jazz and he's looking to trade him. And also credit to Michael Jordan. It's hilarious that some of the best basketball moves that he was on the side of in terms of running a front office, quote-unquote, was with the Bulls and not with the Hornets because <laughs> – because his decision to not want to give away Scotty Pippen was just like like some of the players that the, that were involved in these deals ended up being great players, you know, like a Tracy McGrady, and he was still like, no, we have to keep Scotty, and it and it's just crazy on how much faith he have in him had in him and the amount of credit he gave Scotty Pippen throughout the first two hours was um, pretty impressive. I actually didn't expect that from him. Talking about you know knowing kind of basic details about it and stuff that you know we uh you just hear about but i thought the documentary itself did a fantastic job of like uncovering everything you know like for people our age you think about how many people our age were in the same boat as us kind of just knowing all these like folklore like stories about this dynasty and the three-peat and then you know to hear that there was all of this stuff going on like behind the scenes and the fact that they still did what they accomplished, what they accomplished with stuff like that going on was incredible. And like you said, with the Jerry Krause thing, like really early on, they talked, you know, they had a couple comments in there. Like, you know, he was a really nice guy, caring guy, cared for people. But, you know, as they described from there on out in the Napoleonic complex, you know, he was a <laughs> jerk to people and stuff like that. Like, they gave him his little shine, and then after that, he became, like, the most hated man in America. Yeah, to build on the Jerry Krause thing, because obviously the first episode makes it clear that Jerry Krause is sort of considered the bad guy in all this, that he's the reason that the dynasty got broken up. And you saw several points about how terrible a relationship he had with the players on the team, including this clip of Michael Jordan's completely, like, owning him like and teasing him prior to a game. Yeah, people forgot that he basically is yelling at Jerry Krause. You want to join us on the layup line? Okay, we'll have to lower the rim for you. He basically just kept on dunking on his height because you get because just literally no respect for Jerry Krause whatsoever from Jordan. Man, I mean, look, if you have older older family members and and if they're like kind of around the same generation, like even older than than Michael and, and those guys, like that's how they that's how they like bully people, you know. Like it, it was they berated you. We're we're not accustomed to that, you know. Like 
there's always like people people get called out for crossing the line ever so often and they never do it again like then then like all things all bets were off man and and, and you saw it right there and it didn't matter who you are because at the end of the day no one's more powerful in that bulls organization than, than michael jordan like jerry reinsdorf and, and jerry Krause can can say all they want and do all they want but at the end of the day like if Michael Jordan's not on your side and he's going to leave and it's your fault, the fans are going to turn it turn against you. So I, to a point, Michael knew he could get away with that bullying. And, and I mean, I really personally wanted to see and hope that they had some footage of what Scotty was saying to him on the bus as well, because they referenced that. Yeah, that would have, that would have been really interesting to see because obviously you heard a couple guys that they had talking about it saying, you know, there was some serious stuff coming from the back of the bus, but no one would really say what was said, which leads you to believe that, you know, no one wanted to repeat that for a reason. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and one thing I will say with crowds, like, yeah, I'm sure he was a nice guy, but like this, they definitely felt like towards like the beginning of that season, he was definitely on a power trip. Like the whole move of, I invited the entire team plus future coach Tim Floyd and his wife to my wedding. Everybody, everybody except for Phil Jackson. There's just a clear sign that he wanted to take more credit for that team. And I'm like, that is really ballsy when you know you have the best player on the planet and, like, you're trying to claim that, oh, Tim Floyd could run this team and do just as well. It just had a very messy vibe to it. And, and they, I think they said it, it must have been in the first episode, that, they were, that when Reinsdorf was going around looking to appoint the new executives to the team, Everyone was telling him, stay away from him. He's not good in terms of relationships. He might be good at his job. He might be a good guy. But at the end of the day, like you could see, he was at the core of the toxic relationship with that franchise. Because every single core relationship that they were talking about with the Bulls, it all led back to Jerry Krause and no one. And so, unfortunately, like he can't even like defend himself in this whole thing because he unfortunately passed away. So, I mean... It's a little one side to the story, but when there's this many people siding with that side of the story, it's you know it's hard to change people's perceptions on it. Yeah, I would agree. Let's talk. Let's go to the other big storyline of the night, which is the Scotty Pippen like beginning of his like story arc comes in episode two. Obviously, like Sky Pippen gets a ton of goodwill from the uh, general audience because he gets massively underpaid by the Bulls. He only made. He signed a seven-year, eighteen million dollar deal, and Jerry Reinsdorf in the piece basically says, "You know what? Like, once you sign this, don't bother coming because I'm not going to renegotiate your contract beforehand." And then he gets fed out of the fact he's being underpaid. I think the numbers about were staggering. He was the 122nd highest-paid player in basketball. It's like being the second best guy in the league behind Jordan at the time. So then he has a, a whole controversy with the heel surgery, where he basically says, "I wait till September to get the surgery. I didn't want to f up my summer." Jordan even calls him out at this point. He said Sky was being selfish. And then we ha- end the episode on the trade demand. So, Jack, what do you think about the ups and downs of the Scottie Pippen storyline last night? I mean, I thought the it was just his story is an incredible story, you know, to look at it from an athletic standpoint, the standpoint of, you know, uh, never stop dreaming, you know, him starting off at an NAIA school as the manager of the team things go sour with some of the players who end up leaving and scholarships open. He practically begs for a scholarship and gets it. And along with that, and a nice little growth spurt plays his way into a three-peat. You know, that was just an incredible story uh, for him. And, but like you said, he, he wanted to prove his own point, you know, to management after 
signing that deal and he had his reasons for signing that deal because he needed to know that he could have some sort of financial compensation that would last so that he could help out his family, which is a move that anyone would make given the circumstances that he was in. And I think obviously from the outside looking in, it's uh, not the greatest moral move by Reinsdorf to say, I'm not renegotiating this contract. And he tried to defend himself with saying, you know, you sh- I told him you shouldn't sign this contract. They obviously could have gone back and renegotiated the terms of the deal if they truly uh, valued him at what he was worth. I think that last point was something I was going to make. And Jack, it's a, it's a great point because if Gary really did feel that poorly about the whole contract situation and didn't want him to take it, he could have offered more money there too. And then he could have just re- renegotiated afterwards. It, like, and, you know, it's just it's just funny to me because the Bulls just had a major front office turnover a couple, like, just a week and a half before this whole thing started airing again. So, you know, it still kind of rings true today that Jerry is kind of fickle in a way that, man, he just doesn't get it. That's the second greatest player in, in the history of your team and one of the greatest players of all time and at the time he was also considered a top 50 player of all time even even during that period um like what are you doing you should do everything in your power to do that because not too long ago you could see early in the in the show like what a joke the chicago bulls actually were and that was under his watch as well you know i mean you reward guys for that and Scotty wasn't that old when he was up for a new contract. And I know contracts were a little bit different, and he eventually did get his own. But, I mean, that, that's, in bed, that's in poor taste. And, and honestly, I, I don't think there's any way that you can come out of that looking, looking poor. And I understood where Scotty, Scotty was coming from. Financial security is a very important thing um, for, for players like that. And that whole living situation that he had growing up with, with two uh, disabled people in his house, his father and his brother, and then, you know, growing up poor like that, because I, I can understand where he's coming from that, like, say one thing goes goes wrong for him, he gets a, a really bad injury, and he's not able to support his family anymore. So I respect him, and I'm always on player side when it comes to this stuff. And also, he might have the worst agent of all time, because that is just, it's a horrible deal. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know, it, it, it kind of just reminds me of, like, some of these agents of these NFL wide receivers this season so I mean it's a bad job yeah I mean he definitely had his own issues with this thing and I do think people I think glad Jordan gave him credit for being how good he was basically said during the pieces like people talk about me they should talk about Scottie Pippen and people forget that like the year that Jordan didn't play the year he retired to play baseball in 94 the Bulls took the Knicks to seven games that year on the strength of the back of Scottie Pippen like that team nearly knocked the Knicks off the Knicks went to the finals that year nearly won the championship Sky Pippen was really, really good. Just not getting enough credit. I'm glad this piece is starting to give him his due. Yeah. Um, look, Scott, if, if you if you, you guys know sports, obviously, very well. So, like, you understand how good Scotty is. But, I mean, that's no, that's no joke. You don't come within one game of the NBA Finals against one of the greatest centers of all time and Patrick Ewing. And then, you know, like, if that was any other player today, we, we praise a lot of guys for almost getting there. Scotty deserves that. That's a legit thing on his resume. Going that deep with like the greatest player of all time, without the greatest player of all time, like that's that's noteworthy. That's 
a major accomplishment in my book. Um, and that's something that should elevate his legacy. And hopefully people who don't know about that do take that into account. And it's interesting, too, because it's not something that you would see nowadays in sports, you know, the way that things are trending now where people, that, that sort of adversity and playing with a chip on your shoulder, you know, and Scotty did do that. He, he understood his value, and I think he knew that people around him on his team understood his value, and instead of saying, you know what, I can just coast by and not try hard and I can do whatever I want. I'm going to get paid what I'm being paid. He said he's going to go out there and prove to more people. And of course that somewhat is a, a, you know, it plays against itself because like you mentioned his quote about, you know, he rather got the surgery during the season. So it didn't F up his summer. He at some point realized, you know, enough is enough, but uh, just everything about that story was, him being undervalued, obviously. Yeah, let's get some other interesting storylines that came out of the thing last night. We saw a bit of a lot of Jordan's early years. We heard the story about how Dean Smith gave him the go-ahead to make the shot in the 1982 championship game. We heard Roy Williams talk about how like Jordan is the only guy's ever seen who had who has an on and off who can turn the on and off switch on, and he never turned it off. And I loved the storyline from I. You guys remember the hotel. Yeah. Yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah, I got I got I got the clip. I gotta play. It's a little long, but we have to get this in there. This is just so iconic. <laughs> I never read that out. <laughs> Accurate? Uh look. Guys were doing things that I didn't see. I had one event, preseason, I think we were in Peoria. It's in a hotel. So I'm trying to find my teammates. So I start knocking on doors. I get to this one door, and I knock on the door, and I can hear someone says, shh, shh, someone's outside. And then you hear this deep voice says, who is it? I says, MJ. Oh, and then they all say, oh, fuck, he's just a rookie. Don't worry about it. So they open up the door. I walk in, and oh. Practically the whole team was in there. And it was like things I've never seen in my life, you know, as, as a young kid. You, know, you got all, you got your lines over here. You got your weed smokers over here. You got your women over here. So the first thing I said, look, man, you know, I'm out. You know, because all I can think about is if they come and raid this place right about now, I am just as guilty as everybody else has had, that's in this room. And from that point on, you know, I was more or less on my own. I mean, I never thought we'd hear the traveling cocaine circus get referenced in this documentary. Hey, man, it's the 1980s. It's very hard to tell the story of a lot of a lot of things in the 80s without cocaine. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, like, no, I, I mean, it's just it's what it is, right? Some of the greatest players, like Lawrence Taylor, Josh Gooden, like Daryl Strawberry, all these guys were linked to this stuff. The the tragedy of Len Bias, like it, it it doesn't surprise me. I think the funniest part, though, to take away from it was someone tweeted, "Now the rest of that Chicago Bulls team is sitting down with their families right now, trying to have to explain what was going on." <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> Michael kind of did the patio so bad. I mean. 
look, it, it happened years ago now. It's almost 40 years ago. But, I mean, man, <laughs> what a tough look. I don't know how you can look some of your family in the face that right away. Yeah, I got to say, I gotta say this. I mean, just for the sheer hilarity of it, like, when he starts, like, laughing out loud when he hears the, the traveling cocaine circus, I was, like, literally on the floor laughing with him. I just never heard him laugh that loud. It's funny, too, because he genuinely, he, he did genuinely seem like he had never heard that before, you know, anyone call the team that. But it was funny because you could tell he was like, you know, that probably is a good nickname for what was going on at the time. Yeah, it, it was a very funny story. I like, I love that. I think I saw the highlights of the thing. Another thing I liked in this one was the footage back from the Paris tournament when they were playing the McDonald's championship over in France, and you see the bench when they're winning, and like Ron Harper is like celebrating, they're celebrating, and Jordan's sitting there with this look on his face, like this don't count, this one doesn't count, and you just like that's the intimidation, that's the winner killer mentality. I love out of Jordan, and I don't think that like a lot of t- athletes today really have that deep of a killer instinct uh no i mean i that that's kind of the stuff that i knew about him anyway i knew how much of a relentless competitor he was and that kind of came from his brother larry when they used to play against each other um and and they referenced it he just i mean he kind of scared me through the tv to be honest like how serious he was when it's just an exhibition game man you know like you could dial it back a bit but he didn't even he didn't even want it, you know. Like fifty percent, like probably more than fifty percent of MJ in that moment was serious, you know. Like he was joking around, he smiled at the end of it, but it kind of seemed like you know, like like come on, we, we're doing what we're supposed to. That's not supposed to count, like and all that stuff. And it just honestly, it just made me. It reminded me of like Kobe because there was this moment of Kobe on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And they were showing the picture of like D'Angelo Russell and all those guys like going crazy on the sidelines, even though they're down by like 15 points or something. And then Kobe just had this look on his face like, damn, they're such losers, man. Like, <laughs> this mentality is just like disgusting. Like, he's like, you know, he just, he's like not even disappointed. He's like thoroughly angry at his teammates for just how, like, the lack of seriousness they had. Right. And as, MJ being a leader himself and like Kobe was, you know, he is setting an example almost, you know, that they're, yeah, they're there for an exhibition, something that's supposed to be fun for the fans. And, you know, they talked about on the court, Mike, like you said, was a competitor. And they said that he understood that no matter where he went, there was someone in the stands there that never saw him play in, whether it be in person or even on TV at that time. You know, so he went out and he would put on a, he would do his thing and put on a show. But I think he understood that that was, that was what it was, was an exhibition. You know, that wasn't any sort of, that wasn't what he wanted for himself, his teammates and the organization. He knew that the real goal was an NBA championship. You know, those guys, it was funny too, to see Ron Harper, you know, joking with the team on this bench and saying, that's what it feels like, right? First championship and MJ, like you said, gave him that look almost like, come on, man. He's like, but he he understood, and he was setting an example for everyone, saying, you know, this isn't what we're playing for. He knew what the end goal was. Yeah, and you saw in the practice phase too, when he's basically chewing out Harper, he's chewing out Long, not practicing hard enough, and he felt like he had to step up more in that void when Scottie Pippen's not there. You sort of saw that back in the '86 season when they flash back to that year as well, when he breaks his foot, and then he has. 
he basically secretly goes to Carolina to rehab the thing, comes back, gets in a in a in a feud with ownership over whether or not he should play, and we get the first modern case really of load management where he gets told that he can only play 14 minutes a night, and I have the clip of that as well. Basically, another memorable quote from Jordan talking about this situation with some context from Jerry Reinsdorf as well. I gradually worked my way up to a point where I'm playing 5-on-5 five five in a game, and I got the confidence that the foot is completely healed and I can, and I can play on it. Michael asked him, well, if I play, what percentage is there that I'm going to get hurt again? Doctor said, yeah, 10%. And I just lost it. I said, look, it's 10% chance, but it's 90% chance that I won't. And then I chimed in to the doctors, what happens if the 10% kicks in? And they said, well, then his career would be over. Well, everybody's just thinking about the negative. Well, I think the glass is half full. Everybody thinks it's half empty. So I said to Michael, you don't, you're not understanding the risk-reward ratio. If you had a terrible headache, and I gave you a bottle of pills, and nine of the pills would cure you, and one of the pills would kill you, would you take a pill? I look at him, I said, depends on how bad the headache is. I mean, that says, again, Jordan to a T. Like, all he wanted to do was win, and, like, he said, like, you know what, the odds are in my favor. I want to go out there and play. And the Bulls said, no, 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 we want to protect our long-term investment in you. And then we have the whole saga of you can only play 14 minutes a night, no more, no less. And, like, the coach was basically threatened at that point. I think the previous coach was saying, you know, like, if you play him over 14 minutes, you're going to get fired. And we have this thing where basically from that moment, he sort of distrusts the Bulls organization. And that sets a lot of things in the future in motion with just that one dispute over the injury. No, you're absolutely right. And that kind of, like you said, started him on that path of the distrust. But I thought that was one of the best quotes, you know. And like you said, him as a competitor being one of those, one of the 10 pills might kill you. And he said, depends how bad the headache is. I thought that one was the funniest quote for me of the whole two episodes. But again, it's, it is fascinating to see just how much of a competitor he was and things he would do and, technically the things that he could get away with. And like we touched on before, like no matter what those guys would say, Reinsdorf and Kraus, they knew that MJ was the piece that needed to stay and they needed in some way to keep him happy. And the things that he could get away with going to play, like he said, one-on-one, two-on-two, working his way to five-on-five when he wasn't even supposed to be doing, you know, any sort of workouts on that foot, he managed to play himself into – 14 minutes a game and still get his team into the playoffs when the organization, that was the one thing that they didn't want. But again, just him as a competitor, it's just, it's awesome to see the behind the scenes of that and kind of go into the mind of one of the the greatest competitor in the sport. Yeah, this is, um, this is where he kind of is like borderline sociopath that you're kind of (laughs) like, this guy is just like absolutely out of his mind. And, you heard, and again, this is just one of those things that I, I was talking about earlier. But you knew to a good, like I knew to a pretty damn good extent on how out of his mind he was. But just hearing like the UNC story, I knew he had a clause in his contract at one point with the Bulls that allowed him to play basketball anywhere, anytime, because he was just like that competitive. Um, but they didn't want him to because you know the possibility of injuring himself. And we've seen athletes over the course of like all sports you know, injure themselves, pick up basketball, stuff like that. Jerry Blood slides on a sidewalk and breaks his arm. Um, 
so I just had to drop that. Yeah, sorry, but, <laughs> um, but it's but it's the total risk versus reward situation. Like what he was risking was one of the greatest careers of all time, and if he re-injured himself, even if it was a ten percent chance, we're not even having this documentary, and we really have nothing to talk about during quarantine. Like it's he's probably just another footnote of, wow, this guy is similar to like Ralph Sampson or something like the, the extraordinary numbers he was putting up his rookie season just never came to fruition just because he didn't play it safe. And I mean, look, life's about risk and taking gambles and he took the most ultimate risk of all time. And I mean, it paid off like that, that, that besides like LeBron losing to the Warriors, um, I think it was 2015 where he's putting up absurd numbers. I, I'm not sure a player has played that great in a series and lost. Like, Tiggy averaged like 50 something points in, in the Boston Garden against the 86 Celtics. It's one of the greatest home teams of all time. They lost like three games the whole year, including the playoffs at home. Like, that's absolutely insane. The winner lose. That's, you know, it's. Uh, sorry, it's just speechless. It's just people don't really understand like the magnitude of what what he was doing at 22 years old. And it's interesting, Mark. You know, like what you said with the gamble that he was taking, and like you said, he was known to be stubborn about that stuff. And it was, you know, you almost just thought of like, I was, Yeah, any anyone in that situation that could do something like we we understand now. But had something happened, like we wouldn't even know. No one would know really what we were missing out on. And like he didn't care about that. Like he just was thinking, I want. Like he was thinking in the moment, I want to play today. I want to play tomorrow. Like I don't care what could happen a year from now. I cannot be playing. He wanted to play in that moment. Like you know, that's just like the ultimate competitor. And just the risk that he was willing to take, you could side with the people, all the people in the documentary that were saying, like the doctors and stuff saying, this is, it's it's not worth it. You know, like just sit it out, let it heal and you can continue to do it next year. But he just wasn't like that. Yeah. What, I mean, that performance, the Boston Garmarty reference, we had the great quote from Larry Bird in there. He said, that wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God disguised Michael Jordan. That's like how epic his performance was. I also want to throw out there a great, they had a lot of great archival footage, including one of the worst calls of all time about Michael's career, courtesy of the great Walt Frazier. You got to realize he's not seven foot, so he's not going to carry a team in the NBA. Well, about that one, that did not age very well. I Look, I mean, Walt's entertaining to listen to. I enjoy his rhymes. I enjoy his suits. People are wrong. <laughs> he was wrong, you know. It's, uh, but no one was more wrong than the varsity coach at, at Laney. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it's all right. Clyde, Clyde, Clyde gets a pass because he's cool. <laughs> that, that was something I also loved. I want to throw this out there. The epic lower third they put up there. Barack Obama, former Chicago resident. Yeah. yeah that was, that was an interesting one. I got why they did all of it, though. Um, I don't know if you guys, you guys probably picked up on why they did that stuff, right? Or yeah, they wanted to make no, it. So they wanted to make it sort yeah. of like irrelevant to the piece, like oh, like just because the they want to make yeah, it just because exactly. he's a, the same presence. thing. The same thing with Bob Costas. Bob Costas, seventy nine to nineteen eighty, WGN News. You know, like 
Bob Costas, for God's sake, for just talking about the one year he spent in Chicago. You know, it, yeah, it was just referencing the whole thing. It's funny to see that, though. Like, all these guys, like, oh, yeah, I know from this and that. And, and like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's Obama. And he's just Chicago, former Chicago president. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's funny. Yeah. And that was, it's a great, it's a great screenshot. It's all over the place. Yeah, that blew up Twitter last night, the former Chicago resident. I would think that was like number three trending, I think, right after it came out, world, like worldwide. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think it was the hey, last, it was the last, you know what? It was the last dance, 90 Day Fiance, and then former Chicago resident was the third biggest trend. <laughs> you know what? I thought it was, you know, I'm sure funny for a whole lot of people out there, and I texted Mike about it during the, the documentary last night, and it wasn't funny for us, was, State Farm had to some way, somehow get a shot in at the Jets with their stupid uh, commercial. Yeah, yeah. Why I, can't we escape this mess? I texted Mike about it right when it happened. Come on. Just refer back to the name of the podcast. It's like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I don't know. He had a jab at the Cubs, though. So, like, yeah. say the Cubs number one in uh, 2016. Like that, that burn must have been so much deeper because you know, the Cubs have been rebuilding for forty years. See, that doesn't hurt anymore because the Cubs finally won. Yeah. If the Cubs didn't win, that's gonna hurt a lot more. You know what I'm saying? Like, if they come out with some documentary on like the '86 mess or something like that, and they make fun of like the Jets, yeah, Jets still haven't had a quarterback since Joe Namath. You know, like that still hurts your feelings today because they haven't like really done that. Yeah, that one I knew was just a commercial. I felt bad for the Trailblazer Flames. I had to relive again. Like, oh, we took Sam Bowie instead of Michael Jordan. That changed the course of our history. I, I've i always thought the, the Portland Trailblazers ha- fans have been arguably the most tortured fans. There's Sam Bowie. There's the Bill Walton injury. You didn't get the full career out of him, even though he won a title there. There's Greg Oden. There's the, the not being able to get Brandon Roy for a full career as well. Like they don't, they don't get any favors a lot of the time. They get Dame and Clyde Drexler and all that, but like outside of that, it's a lot of like torture and heartbreak and what could have been. And, and, you know, I, I feel their pain. You never want to be in the sandwich in between. You know, that's their generation, Starko Milicic, right there. Like that's that. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that's a good place to wrap this one up. I'm going to continue this next week. I'm going to do episodes three and four. I'm actually going to bring in a new tandem next week: Ian Sachs and Austin Stellato. Jack, I appreciate this. The off in the play-by-play combo of Iona basketball. They're going to be on next week talking episodes three and four. They'll be a good tandem. They won't top me and Martino, but they'll be good. They will hey, be. So, hey, hey, I'll say I'll say this, man. You know, Iona basketball. That's that's the thing right now. That's going to be the Chicago Bulls of the New York Tri-State area basketball. I think you might be right. That's <laughs> We got a new guy in town. He's yeah, got a pretty big name. I'm sure Mike's talked about it on the podcast. Yes, he's been, he's pretty good. That guy, pretty well known. I would say, I would say, as hopefully by November, we'll actually be allowed to go into buildings and actually people actually go down to go down to Heinz Center and see him. Yes, yes. Get Bill Russell if they play San Francisco, baby. Jack, I want to see coordinating Bill Russell over to his seat at the Heinz Center. I'll do what I, I'll do what I can do <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, there we have. It. We're gonna we're gonna play here. This is a, definitely a lot of fun. I'm excited to keep an eye on this series going forward. 
you guys' chance to plug your social media is Jack. Would you like to go first? You have not, since you have not been on here in a while. Sure. On Twitter, same as last time at Jack Clark six twenty. That's where you can follow me. All right, Martino. How about you? Follow me on Twitter at Martino Puccio. See if I freak out this Thursday night um, when the Jets are up at the eleventh pick, hoping for it to not be a complete embarrassment and disaster. Yeah, so if the if the Jets take Derek Brown, you'll be freaking out. I oh, dude, honestly, I I oof oof oof, man, don't even, I don't know why'd you do that? I, I was like, I was like, that was like, it was a good podcast. Enjoy the rest of my night. Get a little jab with the Jets. And now you got me thinking of like he said, best player available. Like, what if Derek Brown's best player available? Yeah, uh, you know, all right, I'll calm down. All right. Well, that'll be a story for next week's podcast. I'll have to Wilson Ironhand then about the Jet pick. See if we're talking about Derek Brown. But up next. Jack's, Jack and our good friend Steve Culzo is going to be on the line. We're talking about The Circle on Netflix right after this. All right, we are back here wrapping up the podcast this week, doing a little pop culture stuff, talking about the Netflix show The Circle. And joining me on the line today, something we haven't heard from since last July, and I will admit the only person I know who's actually watched The Circle in its entirety, the great Steve Culzo of Barstool. Steve, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Nice to be back. It's good to have you back. How has quarantine life been treating you? Uh, it's been quiet. Uh, I've spent a lot of time home with my fiance, who I'm sure I am driving crazy. Um, but everything's been going well, doing my part, staying home, only really going out for groceries. Yep, you got to stay home, wash your hands, stay safe. You got to follow the basic principles of the no New York on pause thing. And watch the circle, which is exactly what I did. Indeed. I watched the circle back in January. And the reason I think we're doing this, I think you and I both agree. This is interesting because this is basically a reality show where they were social distancing before it was cool. Yeah, they were. That's that's the definition. They were social distancing. All they had to do, the only way they can interact was to talk through the app through the circle. They never could meet each other. They never could be near each other, definitely more than six feet apart. So that was. It's crazy how all this comes full circle. No, uh, no pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. For people, the uninitiated, The Circle is a reality show that's on Netflix. It originated out in the UK. The model of this is that the players, there's usually eight or nine at a time in the game. They all live in like these posh apartments. They can go like different places in the building, but they can't physically see one another. The only way they can interact with each other is through this app called The Circle, the social media tool. The idea is that you want to try and influence each other to basically become the most popular person in the circle. At the end of the show, the person who is the most popular wins $100,000. Did I do a good job summing up the basic premise? Yeah. Um, basically, when you said all that there's need to say, they interact with an app called The Circle. They have to make friends to gain influence. And the way the story progresses is if you're the top two, you become an influencer. Then those two people can discuss or why at the end those two people to discuss who they want to block or which is really kicking out someone from the game. And yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a lot of fun. I will say like the, if you're not going to watch it, I mean, if you watch the first episode, I think if you're not hooked by the end of it, you're not going to want to stick around because I think it's a very unique concept. You can, if you don't, the characters don't hook you immediately. The next buzz that come in aren't as compelling. Yeah. With this, with this show, it took me the first three episodes actually to get into it, um, and I was really into it after that. Characters like Joey, I did not click with right away, or 
even Sammy, I mean, Shubham was, was my was my guy from the start. Uh, but I know people who have who have watched it who it took them a little while and they kind of gave up. But actually, the the characters are what make this show. The premises is kind of out there, and I didn't actually think I would like it uh, to be honest. But the characters really really develop over time. You come to like almost all of them. Yeah, you do. And before we dive any further into this, I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up here. So from this point forward, we're going to actually spoil some stuff that happened on The Circle this season. So if you want to watch the show and you want to come back later, you feel free to do that. But I will say there's some interesting concepts in this game, including the idea that you don't have to be yourself in the app. You can be somebody else. Yeah, um, you could come in basically as yourself. You can come in as a different version of yourself, or you can come as a completely different person known as catfishing. Um, there are some people such well, I guess I can spoil it now, right? Yep. Some people such as Rebecca, a.k.a. Seaburn, um, he basically was, he came in as his girlfriend. Um, then later on, there's a girl named Sean who uh, works in the plus-size industry who decided to be, to show some photos of her, uh, what she would think is a you know a skinnier, prettier friend. Um, and there's also Mercedes, aka Karen, who who is a uh, like a tough like a tough Bronx woman, basically. Yeah, a tough Bronx woman who thought she would gain influence better by being someone else. Yeah, she basically played like a like a skinny like a skinny like uh, straight version of herself because like Karen is a lesbian. People don't people who don't know that. Correct. Yeah. And I have to say, like the catfish moments in the show, I think were so fantastic. I remember watching Mercedes like trying like basically trying to like Antonio basically flirting with her like the the basketball player like and she was like eating it up. It was hilarious. And there was a conversation at one point like a girls chat that all the people whose girl profiles in the circle like form to talk about like, like woman issues. And you have poor Seaburn in there, like just trying to talk about stuff like periods. You're like, Oh God, Seaburn, I feel bad for you. Yeah. That was one of my favorite moments. Seaburn's in the chat with the girls and he's like, Oh yeah. my you know, my period, I get a cramp in my left side and all the girls were like, what? That's never happened to me. And I'm surprised it actually didn't develop more with them being a little bit more confused or thinking that, that Seaburn was fake, that Rebecca was fake. Yeah, there were some interesting catfishes for sure. Those two, also Adam, a.k.a. Alex, and Alex is the biggest dweeb on the planet, and he basically decides that he's going to be a hunk for his catfish, and watching him try to fumble around flirting with women was hysterical. Yes, Alex was the worst. I He's one of my least favorite characters in any show of all time. I think he's so far out of the game, he's been dating or now i forgot if he was married yeah, he's, he's like um, he's, he's been in a relationship for like 10 years yes exactly so he has been out of the game for so long i and he's playing a version of who i think he always wanted to be you know a better look better looking guy named adam who's fit who can you know talk up with the ladies but he had no idea how to talk to anybody you know he's saying oh you know the person that arouses me the best with this conversation will be able to have this date with me he's just so out of the loop and I don't like the way he dresses. I didn't like anything about him. Yeah, I just thought like he was hilarious. He's kind of like in wrestling terms, he's kind of like the heel of the season. I feel like. Oh, Adam was absolutely the heel. I, I don't think there was anyone else that at least I disliked, and there was no one that really was trying to 
screw anyone over. Like I think actually everyone played a pretty clean game, and Adam was just or Alex or whoever was just I don't know. I he didn't do it for me. Yeah, what do you think about the way they structured the game? Where you know you put the first eight in, then they kept adding. I think they had about five different people as people got booted. So. Some somebody like Ed, who was the last person in, but it was actually Ed and his mom playing as just Ed. So like, did you like the way they brought everybody in? Did they should have like done everybody at once? Do you like the structure of how they brought the players into the game? So I know they have Netflix made a UK version, I believe, before the US version, and then they wound up making like a France version and a Brazil version, and obviously the US version. And I don't know how it worked with those others, but I felt like as a brought people into this game in the u.s that the outsiders really didn't stand a chance that miranda i think had she had a little bit more time to interact but people like ed and his mom or or bill or sean they kind of seemed like afterthoughts once they came in so that's something i think they would have to fix for a second season is maybe give them more time or something like that because i felt like how they didn't even even stir up drama bill was just kind of there and sean had her her story with with her uh with how she looked and how she wanted to present herself. Um, but I don't think anyone outside of the original cast really even had a chance. Yeah, I will say Bill was the most useless person on that cast. He was just really there. He got indignantly angry when he got booted. for like, And we saw no interaction with him with really anybody. I'm like, why would you even bother casting Bill? Right. Bill was, as you said, and as I said, just there. I think I would have liked him if he came in at the beginning. He seems like a normal dude, a nice guy. Just he had nothing going for him in the few episodes he had. Yeah, and the original eight, I think, were the most dynamic players, which is why they put them in the house first, in the apartment building first, to get them all going. And of the original bunch, who would you like the most? Uh, I would say, yeah. Shuby, Shubam was definitely my guy. He's kind of like, oh, you know, I hate social media. Everyone's always like, yes, 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 and love this, love that. And I'm kind of on his side with that, that I'm not a huge, I don't have a huge social media presence. Maybe with my job, I should. Um, but it's, a lot of it is fake. I don't have an Instagram. Um, just a lot of people don't interest me. I just, you know, I like to keep my close circle of friends. I don't need to like things for approval or need likes for approval. So me and Shubam, I think, would get along swimmingly in real life yeah i love shuby too because shuby's just such a genuine guy where i feel like shuby is like us in the game where he's like oh you know like i don't have to be fake i'm just trying to be who i am i'm very friendly i'm very just trying to be nice and and make people feel good i feel like that's sort of the shuby role and we saw it did well for him in the game yeah he was just a normal dude just trying to get by and try to make friends and show that the process can work just by being yourself with your real picture, with your real personality, with your real ability to make connections. Yeah, he was fun. And the guy who grew on me the most throughout the season was Joey. Because when Joey first walks in, you think, oh, this is a typical Jersey Shore douche. He's worried about, like, getting his hair done right. But at the, you see him as the show progresses. He becomes more sensitive. He lets his... The, the frat boy douche thing go down a bit, and now he becomes more of a chill, normal guy, and Joey really grew on me as the show went on. Right, so with Joey, I thought the same. I was actually, I've always been a big Jersey Shore fan. Um, I just think the loud and obnoxious nature of that show in itself is hysterical. But when Joey came in, I did not get the greatest first impression. It's sort of with some of these other characters when, they're probably told to like ham it up when they first see the circle. Like they see the screen for the first time. They're like, all right, circle, you're the best or something like that. And I thought Joey was very loud and trying to 
get his 15 minutes of fame at the, at the start. Uh, but he was, yeah, a typical Jersey Shore guy, you know, with back hair. Um, he was compared to, I think, Al Pacino. Um, to, to go through his story arc, you know, he started, I think he was hitting on Sammy a little bit at the beginning, same with, and then it turned into Miranda, and he actually seemed like a good guy. And Miranda would tell her side of the, her story with her foster homes, and she always seemed like a, a true, genuine guy. And then, I mean, sure, he's, He's a good-looking guy. He's confident, so he was he was hit on just about all the girls. But his friendship with Shuby is one of the best things I've ever seen on television as well. Um, two people who are complete opposites, and they just be calling each other brother and everything like that. Um, and they would protect each other. And I feel like Shuby wasn't used to having friends like Joey, and I don't know if Joey would have friends like Shuby, but in this environment, it worked. Um, and then for him to pull it out at the end um, was, was great. I thought it would be down between... Shuby and Joey, and that's exactly what it was. But I actually thought Shubham would win, um, but I'm glad Joey did. Yeah, two things that won me over with Joey was one you mentioned, like his relationship with Miranda was very interesting because, like, I think you thought, oh, he's just flirting because, like, she's hot and all that. But, like, you saw, like, they formed a genuine connection at the point when she gets booted from the game. She goes to visit Joey and they kiss, and you're like, oh, this is nice. They could have, like, a good relationship in the outside world. And I've also loved the fact he didn't take the show too seriously. Like when they were doing some of these challenges, like the one where they had to decorate the cake and his was a complete disaster. He just was owning it. Like, Oh, you know, I'm so terrible at this. I can't do any of this. And he was just like, not getting pissed off about it. He was just like enjoying the moment. Yeah. Especially with, with that cake. Uh, I was actually watching it over today and I watched that loud when he basically had a picture of what he was supposed to make next to the cake that he actually made. He was like, look, it's uncanny. This is unbelievable. I'm, the best at this like obviously joking around and he had a he had a bunch of those moments throughout the show and you know she's shouting yeah buddy at everything and everyone and fun story line from the season that was interesting was the fake uh romance that was going on between the two catfishes is most of the season like alex aka adam was basically flirting with rebecca aka seaburn and like at the like there were points where they were basically trying to like flirt with each other for strategy and it was so funny at the end when they when Alex goes see Rebecca on the way out and they re- they realize, oh, we're both catfish and they just have this big laugh. I thought that was hysterical. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they wound up having the reactions that they did with each other. Like, oh, you're a catfish. Oh, you're a catfish. And I think that made Alex probably seem a little bit happier, but they didn't seem like too shocked there. They saw each other. They're like, no, let's bro hug. Like, this is awesome. I expected a little bit more of, I don't know, something else. Um, um, this taste for each other for some anything, but everyone seemed to love each other, and I don't know how much of that was actual genuineness or how they wanted to be perceived on television. I think it was genuine because, like, the way that the original people interact with each other, I think Ed calls this out specifically towards the end of the show. He's like, This is so fake. How do people not see it? Because he's not emotionally attached to this group because he just came in towards the end. Well, these, like, the original five were left at that point, uh, like Rebecca, Chris. Sammy, Joey, and Shuby all four added like basically like about a couple of weeks to form a connection with each other. So they all like sort of buy into their own storyline. Well, Ed's sitting on the outside perspective. Like, you know what? Like, hey, Rebecca's a catfish. I can see she's full of crap. Yeah. And I can understand from his standpoint. He was coming in later. He probably had the same guesses that kind of Shuby did at the beginning. Like, oh, people are going to be so fake. Um, but actually, they had real genuine connections, I think. Um, towards the end of the competition. So Ed's probably like, well, who are these people? Why is everyone loving each other? They're all just trying to 
be popular and that's that. So I can respect Ed's uh, outlook on that because I think I would be the same way. Also, in regards to Ed, I don't know why his mom was there, but is there anyone that has looked like a Tammy more than his mom? His mom <laughs> fits the bill of a Tammy. Yeah, she does. And I thought it was a bad choice of producer part to make them play as Ed. I think if they had played as Tammy and had them both there, I think that would have been funnier. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I also think in terms of the catfish themselves, I think the most entertaining catfish was Mercedes, like also, a.k.a. Karen, because Karen basically was being herself through the skinny girl personality, and like she was just basically messing with these people. She was taking shots at Joey. She was taking, she was messing around with Antonio. Karen meant business, and I thought she was great when she was on the show. Yeah, I thought Mercedes was hilarious. I thought she was one of the most real ones there. Um, she was well, that's kind of hard to say based on she was faking I'm being someone else. But, I mean, she was open kind of about her, her sexuality um, when she was talking to, I think, Sammy or Miranda. She's flirting, flirting up like that. Um, but she would tell it how it was. She would say, you know, I don't trust this person. I don't think she was playing up a game with anybody. Uh, she's just a hard-nosed person who I think just enjoys life and um, enjoyed just being on the show. Yeah, one guy who surprised me I didn't think would do as poorly as he did at the end was Chris. Because at the beginning of the game, Chris is sort of like, you know, like the get, like the typical, like, you know, like, I'm going to be the trusted gay, gay friend. You're going to spill the tea to me. I'll I'll gossip with you. But, like, I feel like he just didn't, like, come across genuine enough his connections, too. That's why he finished in fifth place out of the final five. Yeah, I don't think he came across as genuine towards the end as well. I know he had a good connection with, with Sammy, um, but he was one of my favorite characters as well. Again, I liked almost everybody. Um, he was the realist from the start. He was his actual person. He wasn't faking on being anything else than he was. He was hysterical. Um, but he, yeah, he did come in fifth. Him, I thought at times he had connections with, like, by connections, I mean, friendships with, with Shuby and Joey, um, but things seemed to not click towards the end. I don't exactly know what it was. Yeah, in case people are wondering how the people like did it, at the end of every like cycle of the game, they'll basically be asked to rate each other in terms of like mo- a popularity and like who you like the most down to who you like the least. And like Chris, for most of the game, is kind of like three or four, which is a spot I thought you want to be in because like if you got too popular, people will say, "Oh, you're a threat. We gotta get rid of you because you might win." But like he was sitting in that middle spot. He never got out of there. Right. Someone like, I think Antonio said that at the beginning of, of the season, like he didn't want to be an influence at the beginning because he thought he was going to be a threat. And look at that. Look at that. I don't think it was actually related, but he wound up going home in the in the second round of cuts, basically. Um, that's for his own issues. But yeah, Chris stayed in that four to five range the whole time. He was an influencer, I believe, once. I forgot who he was with. And... Um, I don't know. I there was. I don't think there was anything wrong with Chris. I just think people liked Shuby, Joey, um, Rebecca, and Sammy better. Yeah, what? There's th- nothing wrong with that. Yeah, what do you think about Sammy? By the way, I haven't got gotten your thoughts on her yet. Yeah, so with Sammy, she was one of my favorites as well. She played the game. I thought brave, and she was also doing everything real. But when it came to guys, and guys were going to flirt with her. Uh, she she egged them on a little bit, but nothing to like lead them on into like a relationship or anything like that. So I thought she she played the game well. Um, I I didn't find her incredibly entertaining, but she she played the game well. I gotta give her credit. She came in third. 
Yeah, she did, and she came up right behind Shuby. I gotta admit, one of the most impressive streaks of the season was Shuby basically being an influencer every week after week one. Yeah, well, the first, yeah, the thing is, in the first week, he came in last, well, came in eighth place, and thankfully, they didn't have the rules back then, where, you know, if you come in last, then you're automatically eliminated, because then who knows what would have happened. So after that first week, he became friends just about everybody. Became an influencer three or four times, is a, is a whole bunch of times, and everyone trusted him. Uh, something I would hope maybe for like season two is that they had someone just as trustworthy or who people think are just as trustworthy as Shuby and wound up just being a completely different person out for themselves. Uh, but Shuby was a shining star for this. And I think something with Shuby, I believe he made an Instagram and now has something like 600,000 followers. So that's something I don't exactly like, but I mean, go make your money. I, I appreciate you going to get that bread. But um, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a hustler after the show. He definitely picked up the social media game, but I wonder if the all the influencer things cost him at the end of the game because at the, that point in the final ratings, everybody has to rate each other and try to think a little bit strategically about how I want to rate them to win the game. I want to make people start putting Shuby a notch lower because you know what? like He's going to win. I have to put him a notch below where I would otherwise because otherwise I can't beat him. Right, yeah. So we would see the internal debate that each contestant was having as to who they wanted to put into the finale or who they wanted to finish first. And what seemed like everyone just went with who they thought deserved it, which is crazy if you think about like how much money they're going to make if they win. But something with these shows now, I think you want to portray yourself as the good guy, especially if you're towards the finale. At that point, $100,000 sounds like a lot of money, but if you play the game right if you play the reality tv game right you're going to make a whole lot more than a hundred thousand dollars just becoming influencer um, in other ways yeah so like so i don't know if that was on i don't know if that was on their mind um if they wanted to you know play the game where you know they wanted that hundred thousand or if they wanted to show themselves on netflix as you know this good genuine person so let me ask you this then let's say you got in the circle for like another a future season there and you were playing this would you play as Steve Kultzar, or would you play as a different person? Oh, I would absolutely play as myself for the sole reason that I am a completely average-looking person who I think is a, a a nice guy overall. I don't think I don't think I would choose, you know, a, a better-looking or a worse-looking person. I'm basically as average as I think as you can get, and that would be my advantage. Sort of like you. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the the, the problem is, is like. If you're going to be like a, a catfish like, and you're not using your own personality, it's really, really hard to sort of distinguish like what would my fake persona say or what would I say? I think and they were also in that house looking like, oh, like I'm looking for the fakes. I'm trying to figure out who's lying to me. And if you are more your genuine self, that makes it easier to advance in that game. Yeah, I agree. I think I think I would be myself. I mean, only you know yourself the best and you wouldn't have to try to think of things off the top of your head, kind of like, like Seaburn did with Rebecca, obviously saying a few weird things when it came to their, their female happenings. Um, so yeah, I thought, I think I would, I would be, be myself and just try to try to do it entertaining. So at least I would, you know, become famous through Netflix, I guess. Yeah. You become Netflix famous and, what do you think about the way Netflix released this show? Because typically most of Netflix is like, oh, like we drop every episode at once and here we go. But 
they did it sort of in batches of four episodes over three weeks at a time, over three weeks total. So, like, the first four came out one week, then the next four, the second week, the last four, the finale. Do you like that, or would you like the more traditional drop everything at once? So, on a personal note, I would rather watch everything, I think, at the same time. Um, that's the way I like to binge things, is to know that there's, you know, it's all there at the start. But, however, from a business perspective, and I think if I had watched the first four episodes, I feel like I'd you know, tell my friends, like, well, I watch, watch the show, I'm really into it, like, the first few episodes are out, like, maybe, I don't know, get a few friends together to watch the rest of them, maybe get a little hype with it, I don't know if that was their thought process, um, it was different for sure, but for me, I prefer to have just everything dropped at once, but I don't know if that's how Netflix wants to do things, they have a ton of data, they might know, you know, they may know what we want more than we do. I think I think the model is fine the way they did, but the way I would like to see them do is sort of add more episodes in this format here because I think at the beginning it felt like it was going bang, 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 bang. Then we kind of slowed down. We were sort of stretching out to like fill these new people in and get them in and out of the show pretty quick. At one point there was like, I think like three episodes left. We still have like eight or nine people in the circle, which I think was insane. So I wouldn't mind them pushing it out a little bit, giving these new people a longer time to integrate and sort of, have a more consistent pace of when we're eliminating people. Yeah, they need to do that. They need to have more time for these new characters to make a connection with the audience and with, with each other. Um, they, it, we just didn't get enough of Bill. We didn't get enough of Sean. We didn't get enough of Ed and his mom. Not that I really wanted to. Um, so I think that's definitely something they can improve on in season two. Yeah, because, I mean, we knew the original eight pretty well. We got a good sense of Miranda and Adam, a.k.a. Alex, but the other three characters that came in, we really got nothing out of them aside from, like, base-level stuff with Sean's story. Yeah, um, and it was good to, at least, that was probably the most that we got out of anyone with Sean and her struggles about who she was or is and who she wanted to be and who she thought would make a connection with people. Outside of that, again, as I mentioned before, Bill was just there. It was with his mom. Um, Miranda was interesting. Um, and Alex was a creep. So, Yeah, Alex was a creep. And last thing for me, like, what was your favorite moment of the first season of The Circle? So I had two. My first would be when Sammy and Miranda had their little bet going on as to who can get Joey to send an eggplant emoji. Um, and it seemed like he only knew like what the chili pepper was. And then they kept, you know, egging him on and egging him on. And Miranda eventually got him to say, like, send me that, like, send that purple. Uh, he didn't even know what it was. He's like, send that that purple thing. Um, so I thought that whole process of Joe not knowing the significance of an eggplant emoji was. And then the other one is what we mentioned before with Steve and completely lost when it came to the women's chat and their, um, and their period. So... Those I thought were my two favorite, and Joey winning just because I was I was happy for him. Yeah, those were good for sure. I know. I think my favorite thing, just in terms of pure hilarity factor, was the quote unquote date that Adam Rebecca had in the circle, which I think like was absolutely hysterical. Watching them both try and fake their way through it through a date, I thought that was great. Yeah, Rebecca was like, "Oh, this this uh, this date blew my mind." It was the best thing ever and Alex was kind of just like I don't know about that but uh, but yeah just two catfishes just trying to flirt with each other not with no intentions of being real I will give Alex this though I know he was a creep but like he at least owned yeah, the fact he, that he, he was really seemed, 
he was he really seemed to look out i just i don't get it i i hated that guy i i think it's just like he i think that he was sort of like an ingredient we didn't really have a season where he would like he knew he was going to cause trouble and like he was definitely like game to like mix things up whereas a lot of these people were very friendly like but it's part of me is the reality TV background, like where I, I'll watch Survivor, I'll watch Big Brother. I'm like, oh, I like having that villainous element in the show and sort of stir things up and stir the pot a little bit. I feel like he was that guy on the show. Oh, I usually love the villains. Yeah. But he was just one that I did not. I felt like he was an older guy who thought like, oh, millennials probably speak like this. Oh, hey, babe, come here. Let me arouse you. And he just was so out of touch with, with reality. So I did not like him. I will respectfully disagree with your opinion on yeah i think that's what made it funny was my opinion it was just like he was just so bad at it that it was like i was just laughing like wow like he what could he come up with next to make himself look even dumber yeah and that's that's your thought but i he did not do much for me all right so if you are interested in watching the circle you can go check out all 12 episodes on netflix they are out right now season one i would suspect we're gonna get a season two down the line but probably have to wait till we can all actually leave our houses before they can actually film it I would assume so, but yeah, I hope uh, hope everyone stays safe and is doing doing their part to contain contain this thing. Hopefully, we're all back to maybe what might be a new normal soon. Yeah, hopefully we'll eventually. Well, eventually we'll be out of our houses, so it's not gonna be we're not gonna be here for the next three years. Eventually we'll be out. But for now, Steve, thanks for coming on. Before I let you go, do you want people know how to find you on social media and keep up with some of the stuff you're doing at Barstool? Uh, well, sure. Well, I, as I said, I don't have an Instagram because I'm not about that social media life. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, it is at Steve underscore Colto, at Steve underscore Colto. And uh, that's about it. That's about the only social media that I do. Yeah, definitely keep up with the Barstool stuff. They're doing some fun stuff over there, including the quarantine games. Our good friend John Stank was actually on it twice last week. <laughs> yeah, John took part in the social distance uh, game show where he was on with a few of the Barstool hosts and he had to win a game of Foot Cup and there was some controversy with that and he had to win a game of Pong. So um, to spoil that, he went two for two even after the controversy of game one. So uh, check out the, the social distancing game show on uh, KFC Radio Twitter. Yeah, definitely check that out. I'll bring up the John the next time he's on the podcast. Steve, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, man. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I thank my guest Bill Bender for calling in to help preview the 2020 NFL Draft. Martino Puccio and Jack Clark for talking about the first two episodes of The Last Dance, the 30 for 30 doc on the 97 and 98 Chicago Bulls, and Steve Colzo talking about The Circle on Netflix. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my full mock draft for the first round of the 2020 draft, including who I think the Giants and Jets will end up with in the draft, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Simply search for Just End the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all roll episodes there. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. I put up episodes on there. I also put up the individual segments on there, so the interviews with Bill Bender and the segments with the pop culture stuff and the third, last stand stuff will be up there as well. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings. I'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me at the hashtag... Traveling Cocaine Circus. I don't think there's anything more iconic out of that first two hours of The Last Dance than Traveling Cocaine Circus. That's what we're going with. Next week on the podcast, we are doing the NFL Draft Recap. Fan Forum talking NFL Draft. Last Dance Week 2 and more. Until then, I'll be a better week than Jerry Krause.
This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.